Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're taking a journey through the mysterious, miraculous world of blood with writer Rose George and her latest book, Nine Pines. Rose George is the author of A Life Removed, Hunting for Refuge in the Modern World, The Big Necessity, Adventures in the World of Human Waste, and Deep Sea and Foreign Going, Inside Shipping, The Invisible Industry That Brings You 90% of Everything, which we spoke about on a previous Little Atoms, and which was a BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week, and which won a Mountbatten Maritime Award. Rose writes frequently for The Guardian, New Statesman, and many other publications, and her two TED Talks on sanitation and seafaring have had three million views. And her latest book, Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Mysterious, Miraculous World of Blood, we're going to be talking about today. Rose, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. What's the idea behind Nine Pints, then? Well, Nine Pints is roughly probably what I have in my body. Most The adult human is going to have... Generally, the uh, rough estimate is between 8 and 12 pints. So I assumed that I had about 9 pints. I haven't had my blood measured. You can volume measured, but you can do that. But um, I did, after I'd, after I'd chosen the title, and I did speak to a haematologist who told me he'd seen my TED talk and he thought I was right. I probably had 9 pints. So that's, that's the idea behind it. So at the beginning of the book, though, you don't. You only have eight pints because the book starts with you going and donating blood. Um, so to begin with, I want to talk about what the, I guess, what the logistics are like if I wanted to go and donate blood in the UK. They should be pretty straightforward. You can walk in. Um, it's, it's often quite difficult to do that. But um, you should be able to make an appointment, turn up to an appointment. Then you'll fill in a questionnaire. Um, you'll have been sent a letter, ideally. So you'll go in with your letter and then you'll fill in a questionnaire just asking you, it's a health screening, so you're supposed to be truthful. And once you've done that, you will go into a little room with a uh, staff member and you will have your iron measured. So they'll prick your finger, um, they'll see if the blood sinks to the bottom to denote that you've got enough iron in your blood. Um, they don't want people who are anemic giving blood. Obviously, that's not a good idea. So all these things are to ensure the safety of the blood supply. Then after that, you will go into the blood donating room. Actually, uh, it, when the blood supply first started in sort of the Second World War, they used to call this the bleeding room, which I thought was very, that sort of suits my plain speaking Yorkshireness. But it's not called that anymore. It's the donating room. And um, you'll go and uh, sit on a plastic chair, which is then... 
you'll go through other questions and your name, date of birth and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you'll lie back and you'll proffer your one of your arms. You get to choose which arm. Uh, and then you will hopefully uh, lie back, um, squeeze a little ball to get the blood flowing, get a needle in your inner elbow and give away hopefully about 400 millilitres or just under a pint of whole blood. And donating is the key word here. In this country, they also call it a gift. It's basically voluntary. And there are places where you can go and sell your blood. There's an idea that voluntary is a better way of doing it. Why? The World Health Organization emphasizes uh, its belief that the safest blood supply is what's called a voluntary non-remunerated system. So that's what we have in the UK and have had since 1947, more or less. I mean, it's gone back a bit longer than 1947. And the reason for that is that if you're paying someone to uh, sell blood, then uh, it's probably someone who needs the money. It's going to be become an income. And so that's going to be an incentive to probably sell blood more often than they probably should for their own health. And the other worry about blood selling is that you might be pushed to lie about your health so that you can get the money from your blood. Because obviously the burden is not on you to prove that your blood is safe. It then has to go and be processed. And so there's a cost to whichever system. I'm not sure of the statistics, but I think probably voluntary non-remunerated blood systems in the world are in the minority. I think around the world, for example, I visited India, where on paper uh, nobody sells blood in India, but in practice you can go to any major hospital and it's often people running the stalls outside the hospital and you can ask around and ask for a bag of B positive or A negative and someone will then be fetched and the blood will be drawn and you will get a bag of it and the reason for that is that India and many other countries around the world have something called a family replacement system um, which is actually how blood banking got its name as well so in the US blood banking worked on a similar principle that if you required blood in surgery or any kind of medical procedure you should repay that blood somehow obviously you can't really give your own blood because you need it so you would get it from a family member or a relative or just a really good friend who felt like giving you a, a unit of blood. And this still, this is still how India's system works. But if you're, for example, India is a very mobile country, people move around a lot. So you'll often get migrants moving into cities alone. They don't have people to give blood for them. So obviously, in that kind of system, the obvious stopgap is selling blood. And there have been lots of cases of for a start, you, you shouldn't really buy blood from anyone on a tea stall outside a hospital. But um, there have also been really bad cases of slavery, blood slavery, and um, people keeping other people prisoner and just really milking their blood for months on end. So, yeah, um, we, have a, we have the gold standard of blood supply in the UK. We're very fortunate. The other thing to say is, of course, people have different blood types. And I, like most people, have no idea what my blood type really? is. No. Um, have you never given blood? I haven't given blood. Um, and certainly I have had procedures in the past. And I did a DNA test, which I imagine probably had my blood type on it at some point. But I've forgotten. Like, because it's, you know, I don't need to know on a regular daily basis. You know, I'm not about to give birth or anything like that. <laughs> and then when I read in your book about blood types, it turns out the blood types are a lot more complicated than just your your, your A and your B and, and your O, aren't they? Yes. We think that there are four. If you ask the person on the street, well, first of all, if you ask what your blood type is, you're right. They probably won't know unless they've given birth or... 
uh, given blood because you'll be told. And you're also right that you don't necessarily need to know because you, if you have an accident, then there is what's called a universal blood, which is O negative, uh, which can be given to en uh, anyone for lots of complicated reasons about blood groups and antigens, which I can go into if you like. But anyway, we have, so we think that there are four blood types or groups, which is A, B, O, uh, and AB. And then there's the rhesus, which makes it positive or negative. So that's why you've got A positive, A negative. Uh, and the rhesus factor is, is, again, it's a complicated thing to do with the blood cell, but it, that gives you eight main groups. In fact, uh, we think that given there are lots of rarer blood types, those are the most common, and there's probably about 300, or certainly more than eight, <laughs> somewhere in between eight and 300, and they're still being discovered. So blood is, is really rich and mysterious still, even though we think we know, we do know a lot about it, but there's a lot more to be discovered. Um, you haven't asked me, but mine is A positive. It's, it's just really strange to me. I, you're right that there's no reason in modern, in a modern day world, in, in the UK, for example, if you had an accident, you would be given O negative blood. That would be in the rhesus room fridge. That's what you would be given. And then your blood would be matched and then you would get a more precise blood given to you. I recite an anecdote in, in my book, which actually uh, happened during the research of my last book. So it was on a it was on a, a quayside in um, Mombasa, and I was about to get on a, a Portuguese frigate to go and hunt pirates. But the Portuguese lieutenant who came to meet me, he had a name badge on, and it said, his name was Pedro, and some long Portuguese name. Um, and then underneath it said his blood type. I mean, of course it does, because we expect that in the military for people to ha have their blood types, because... In the field, perhaps you might not have a negative. You might need to use a passing soldier. You mm -hmm. might, you know, a walking blood bank, as they're called. Um, but for some reason, this really struck me, and there was absolutely no logic or rationale to why I was surprised. I was just, like, I just thought that's really intimate. I don't want to know his blood type. It felt like he was revealing something to me that should should be kind of private, and maybe it was just really silly. So I I just started questioning that, and I still haven't come up with come up with an answer as to why I found that surprising but uh, I did. You go to visit a leech farm facility in the book. Tell us about that visit first of all and then we'll talk some more about leeches. Well it's actually the leech farm facility in the UK because there is only one. So the medicinal leech, I think many people would probably think that leeching is something out of Blackadder. I mean, there was a famous scene in Blackadder where he goes to the doctor to be cured of his love for his apparently male manservant. Uh, and the doctor prescribes leeches because the joke is everything for every single ailment and condition. The answer is leeches. And that is true that throughout up until about the 19th century, you know, bloodletting using whatever method, leeches or scalpels or fleams or anything that was standard. And I mean, bloodletting was so popular, it was used for severe blood loss so it was, it was seen as a magic cure so I think and certainly I did before I started reading into blood and, and leeches I assumed that they were barbaric and and certainly old-fashioned and certainly not used in modern medicine and, um, and then so I was absolutely astonished to find that in one particular survey they surveyed about 50 plastic surgery units and I think 80 percent of those 50 were using leeches so they're really commonly used what are they used for? They're used because they because science still hasn't come up with an anticoagulant as good as a leech has. So if you stick a leech on you, and if it chooses to feed, it doesn't always choose to feed, it will bite into you and the blood will flow 
into the leech, but then the leech will drop off when it's full, but then the blood continues to flow. It has a really good anticoagulant. And when that's particularly useful is if, for example, where you've got lots of tiny, tiny blood vessels, capillaries, really tiny veins, and you're reattaching something. So, for example, if you've got a torn lip or a torn ear or a torn finger, or if you've uh, women who've had mastectomies and have reconstructed breasts, sometimes the, they don't take or you've had a skin flap reconstruction, sometimes uh, it won't take and what will happen is the blood will not start flowing because it's very difficult to connect really tiny blood vessels, even for highly skilled microsurgeons. And the blood will congeal and the reattached part will just not take and will drop off and you will have a failed uh, reconstruction. So in many situations, they're also good for dog cauliflower ears, apparently. You stick a leech on and the leech will get the blood flowing better than the... uh, medical equivalent which is um, actually a few leech compounds are used in medicine but back to the leech farm so the leech farm is a place called biofarm and it's near Carmarthen in south wales i mean it's a <laughs> it's in rolling parkland it's just off i can't remember which motorway it's near a motorway but then you drive off and then you, you get to this place which is a really nice manor house and then some outbuildings which house the country's only leech farm and um it's a very very uh, successful establishment it's still it sends out packages of leeches all over the world and so they breed two types of leeches um they breed breed a human medicinal leech which is um quite a small leech which is apparently quite fussy about things like perfume and stubble and then they breed um another veterinary leech which is the buffalo leech which you usually find in certain parts of the world attached to cows legs and so they don't and buffalo legs obviously that's why it's got its name and they don't mind stubble and hair, so they're good for dogs and cats. And um, the reason I mentioned the buffalo leech is because when it came to the point where I was asked if I wanted to handle a leech, which of course I didn't, because who would? But um, there were some student nurses with us, and they were all wonderful, going to be really good nurses. Uh, they probably are by now. And um, they were all absolutely enthusiastic about handling this leech, so I had to save face and handle the damn leech. And Carl, who was taking us round, I'm pretty sure that he did this deliberately, that he said he didn't have any of the smaller, less slimy uh, medicinal leeches, the human, which are apparently not slimy at all. A lot of people think leeches are like slugs, but they're, they're really not. They're an entirely different species, for example, they're worms, actually. But they're not supposed to be slimy, but the uh, buffalo leech, which I did hold, and I don't remember what it felt like, because I just apparently so disgusted (laughs) i remember it feeling really kind of cool and alive and but um apparently uh, and quite slimy because apparently they're the slimy ones and i'm pretty sure that carl did that deliberately um so the leech goes through the various tanks various stages and it's fed you can feed a leech once a year or once every six months and that will keep it going but it's a very delicate process because you you don't want big and small leeches in the same tank so you don't want ones that have got sated and ones that haven't had enough because then they'll just eat each other so that's not a good idea and then eventually they will become what is in in effect a a sterile hospital product and they will be sent to a hospital they will be put on a needy patient and then apparently in in the literature when you read leeching papers which I did for quite a long time they're dispatched humanely but when you actually look into it as a very really wonderful nurse in Ireland who's written about leeching and because it's always the nurses who persuade the patients to have them it's not the surgeons the surgeons just go in and say right you need leeches and then it's the nurses who have to come in with the leeches and calm down their patients 
But uh, yeah, she told me what actually happens, which is that the leech is put in. So the, the, the natural lifespan of a leech is 27 years. But this, once they're one or two years old, they come out of, for example, biofarm. They get used in a hospital setting and they are considered to be a biohazard because they're full of human blood. Or as Carl used to call them, a walking needle. And they do, they do move. So leech migration is a huge problem that you can you can apply a leech to a patient and then come back and find a leech up the shower curtain in the next room, on the floor, under the bed, anywhere. And they are quick. They would beat a slug, probably. But yeah, so how they're dispatched is they're put in, I think it's alcohol, a special kind of alcohol, and they're basically exploded because they're full of blood. So it's really inhumane and I think really ungrateful. <laughs> there was a lovely fellow in the uh, 19th century called George Merriweather, who was a doctor in Whitby. Everything I've read of him, I think he would be a very nice man. He invented something called the Tempest Prognosticator. There's a copy of it in the Whitby Museum and I think one somewhere else. It was a barometer based on leeches. He was convinced that leeches could tell the weather, sense the weather. Um, it didn't pan out because the actual barometer was invented around the same time and you didn't have to keep feeding leeches. So, But he was one of the few people who really valued the poor, humble leech, whereas mostly humanity has just used and abused it to the point of extinction, which is why they have to be bred. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rose George. We're talking about her latest book, Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Mysterious, Miraculous World of Blood. And Rose, I want to move us on to, there's a a woman I'd like you to talk about, Janet Vaughan. Who is she? 
Janet Vaughan was a, well, she was principal of my college at Oxford, actually, before I was there. So I knew her. I, well, I lived in Vaughan, the building, which is actually my third name that no one could ever pronounce or spell before I went to uh, Somerville College. And um, so I was really pleased that there was this woman called Vaughan who meant that everyone knew how to say my name. So I knew her as a name on a building and I knew her as there was a portrait of her in the dining hall. And so, but I didn't think about her beyond that. And then I was reading, there's a very, very big good book on blood from about 15 years ago by a guy called Douglas Starr. And it's mostly, you read through this book and it's mostly men. It's all, the history of blood is generally men, men, male doctors, male scientists, male, it's all men. But then there was this one reference to a woman called Janet Vaughan. That's odd. So I started looking into her, and um, so her story is astonishing. She was a hematologist. Well, she was a she trained as a doctor. She was probably dyslexic, so she was considered too stupid to be educated. But eventually, she got an education, and she went to Somerville College and got a first in I think it was physical sciences, and she became a pathologist. But then with this, with an interest in blood, and one of the first things she did was she. Uh, understood that the current treatment for anemia at the time was to give people arsenic. And she thought that was probably not a very good idea. But it, it was the prevailing medical wisdom. But she'd read up on it and she read that it was probably, it could work to give people liver. So she was very well connected, but not wealthy. Uh, her cousin was Virginia Woolf. So when she decided to try raw liver extract for Poor people suffering with anemia. It was a really big problem, for example, in the slums of London at the time. She went around and borrowed mincers from all her friends and relatives. So she sat in her kitchen with, amongst others, Virginia Woolf's mincer and minced lots of raw liver, produced this extract and um, was absolutely derided by her bosses at the hospital she was working at. Um, she tried it on a dog. It got sick. She tried it on another dog. It got sick. So she thought in what I learned was true Janet fashion. Uh, she thought she may as well take it herself. So she did. She got to hospital the next morning and found her entire department waiting on the lintel of the hospital, on the doorstep of the hospital, uh, thinking she might be dead because they would no idea. But anyway, it turned out to be the proper cure for anemia. So she figured it out. And of course, a male doctor took all the credit. But after that, <laughs> as if that wasn't enough in one lifetime, she... Um, essentially was a fundamental part of setting up the modern blood supply as we have it. So she understood that coming up into the Second World War, at that time there was some kind of, there was blood donation and, and transfusion being performed, but it, it wasn't routine and there was no kind of mass donation system. So there were volunteers um, organised by a guy called Percy Oliver through the British Red Cross, but it was it was still quite haphazard. But what Janet understood was in wartime, it wasn't enough for a hospital to say, OK, we need blood, send a donor. That's how it usually worked. So she understood that blood had to be really separated from the donor and the recipient and stored, and that would be a much more efficient system. But in 1937, for example, at that point, there were lots of preparations for war. So lots of cardboard coffins were being made, trenches were being dug, railings were being taken down, people were being given gas masks, all sorts of things. But the entire supply of blood, in emergency supply of blood in London was eight pints. So Janet learned about this, thought it was ridiculous. And she knew that in the Spanish Civil War, there'd been a doctor who'd set up a really good blood supply. So she modelled herself on him and she got her peers to come and sit in her living room in Bloomsbury and they decided to set up a system of four blood supply depots around London. 
And of course, it was then taken on by the Medical Research Council and Janet was given no credit in the report at the end of the war, but it was very, very successful. So she ran the depot in Slough with a bunch of lady drivers, including a couple of aristocrats who would drive in pearls. And they drove um, converted Wool's ice cream vans around London during the Blitz in blackouts, no lights, through the bombs, delivering blood all around the capital. And um, then came back to the depot at Slough, which Janet was very delighted, had a bar so they could come back and have a whiskey. And she said that was essential to the uh, functioning of a good blood supply depot because people needed to let their hair down a little bit. Um, but she was absolutely fundamental. And then, so without her, we, I don't think we'd have our modern blood supply. I want to talk about plasma and plasma being the um, the clear liquid part of blood. Um, we talked about blood donation as being, you know, mainly a voluntary thing. But of course, obviously, once the once the blood has been donated, um, it then does have a value. There is a, a sort of obviously an internal market for that blood. Plasma is particularly something that there is a, you know, there's clearly a market for, isn't there? Yes, there is. So particularly, I mean, in the UK, you can't sell your plasma. So the plasma that you donate, most female plasma is discarded because uh, of a risk that if a woman has been pregnant, then there could be dangerous antibodies and people could react to it. It's quite complicated and I'll probably get it wrong. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Female plasma is discarded in the UK. That plasma, so the male plasma that is produced is used for transfusion usually. But plasma can have another purpose because it's full of really, really useful proteins. So plasma is also concentrated and refined into lots of medicinal products. And those medicinal products have a very, very high value. The plasma industry is worth at the moment, I think about $17 billion. And the US is known as the OPEC of plasma and exports more plasma than any other country in the world. I think the next is China, mostly for these medicinal products. The reason it can do that and the reason it's become the OPEC of plasma is because in the US you're allowed to sell your plasma twice a week, which is pre it's pretty generous to let people sell plasma twice a week. And the research on what that does to someone's health is, is not quite clear. There are people who question the plasma industry in the US for, for two reasons. One reason is it's often people in low incomes. And if you look at many plasma clinics, they're often situated in low-income areas along the border. Um, for example, people do bus in from Mexico to come and sell their plasma, bus back home again. So it, it is an income. But the question is, is it good for your health to give that much plasma? You will generally regenerate plasma within 24 hours. But again, the long-term effects of giving it that frequently are not really known. So that's one question as to whether it's a good idea to let people sell their plasma for $30 a pop. The other question is the history of the plasma industry. And um, in the UK, this should be in the minds of people at the moment because the plasma, when people talk about contaminated blood and the infected blood inquiry that is ongoing, a public inquiry is now going on. And probably people remember that in the 1980s, lots of haemophiliacs, not just haemophiliacs, but principally haemophiliacs were infected with HIV and hepatitis C from what's called contaminated blood it was actually contaminated plasma because plasma is a blood product. But for some reason, we now think of plasma and blood as almost separate things and you can sell one but not the other. So those plasma products that infected people came from the US, almost certainly, and particularly from prisoners being given money for their plasma in various jails across the US. So it's a really, really ignoble and ugly history that plasma has. And of course, the plasma industry now says they're perfectly safe, that will never happen again. And I'm sure they are doing the absolute utmost to make the plasma industry as safe as it can be, but 
you can never predict what next virus is going to come and what shape it's going to take and where it's going to come from. And um, because a plasma product is, is a pool of people's plasma, because within every donation, there's a very tiny amount of useful stuff. So the problem is when you have one particular product called Factor 8, which was what caused the tragedy, the criminal tragedy in the 1980s, one plasma product could be derived from 10,000 people. So if you think of the odds, they're not great. So there are, there are people who do question whether plasma or a blood supply can ever be truly safe. And the answer is it's, it's, it's as safe as it can possibly be for now. I want to finish off the interview talking about menstruation, I guess, in various different ways. But before we do that, um, can we talk about endometriosis, which is um, a condition that you have yourself? Mm-hmm. Tell us about what that is. Uh, well, there are various theories about what it is. Um, there, there are, no, that's not true. There are theories about what causes it. Um, endometriosis is when you have, it's named after the endometrial lining of the womb, uterus, whatever you want to call it. And these endometrial cells end up elsewhere around the body. And the difficulty is they can stick organs together. So a lot of my organs are stuck together. They can attach themselves to nerve endings and be and cause give a lot of pain. I'm very lucky in that I, even though I have the most severe kind, mine must be in the right place because I haven't really suffered um, a lot of pain from it. But um, it's probably made me infertile. So there's not people don't really understand where it's come from. It's it's more and more common. Whether that's because diagnosis is better, because diagnosis of endometriosis, like with many women's health issues, it takes far too long. On average, it's 10 years. And I think one of the principal problems is that is that women who go to the doctor, as I did as a teenager, and said, look, I've got really painful periods, it's seen as normal. Whereas there should become a point where if you're vomiting or lying in a curled up in a ball on the floor in pain, that's not normal and there should be investigation. But there, was, there wasn't in my case and there isn't, still isn't in many girls' and women's cases. So that's why um, that's one of the reasons endometriosis is increasing. Um, there's obviously lots of, I mean, still in the West, lots of taboos around menstruation. And then in the book, you, you you visit Nepal, where women are literally put into huts while they are, while they menstruate. Um, but in India, you meet a guy who's known as the menstrual man. Uh, menstrual man is, um, is a Tamil called, uh, his short name is Maruga. He's got a nice long Tamil name. And he was, his story is quite astonishing in that he was a poorly educated machine worker, married to a woman called Shanti. And one day Shanti came home and was hiding something behind her back and he thought she was teasing. And eventually uh, she pulled out and she, it was rags that she'd been using as her sanitary pads, so bloodied rags. And he was shocked. He said, why don't you, why don't you use sanitary pads? You can get them at the market. Why don't you get? Why don't you use them? And she said, because we can't afford it, and it's either going to be milk or it's sanitary pads, and we need milk more than I need sanitary pads. And he was really struck by this. And although perhaps the reaction of many husbands in that situation would have been to like, okay, that's women's business, you know, he thought that's not right. And so he spent the next 12 years developing a low-cost machine that could make low-cost sanitary pads. Uh, which was pretty much entirely manual. I think it needs to be plugged in, but operationally it's mostly manual. Uh, it can be operated by illiterate women. That's his ideal. And can produce whatever kind of sanitary pad is required. I mean, and, and that was at considerable cost to himself. His wife left him. The way he decided to explore how sanitary pads were made, because he didn't know, he assumed they were cotton. 
as a lot of people would. And uh, so he got some cotton and he decided that the best way to test it would be to wear it. So he made uh, his own menstruation by getting a football, um, filling it with goat blood uh, and then putting a kind of pump on it and then cycling around Coimbatore, where he's from, pumping every now and then to simulate a period wearing these pads that he was wearing. And, of course, he, he immediately learned what it's like to be a woman because it's South India, it's hot, people wear white. He was wearing white. He was checking behind him for leaks and stains, which we've all done. You probably haven't, but we have. And learning is actually what it's like to have a period and, and, and also developing, learning that uh, cotton was not what sandwich pads were made of and uh, eventually he figured out it was cellulose, it's compacted cellulose, and so he went on the way. His wife eventually came back, but although she's a very nice woman and made me a very very nice lunch, it was only after he became (laughs) well-known that she came back. He was chased out of his village. They thought he was a vampire because he was asking young female medical students to give him their used sanitary pads to do research. Yeah, quite an extraordinary story, Um, which has actually now become a Bollywood film. It's been out a year or so called Padman and... (laughs) They couldn't which, get away with Men's Man. No, I recommend that you go and look at the trailer because they've done it in, you know, that Hollywood baritone. It's in pure Hollywood baritone. Pad Man. I haven't seen it yet, but um, his, uh, he's, he's an amazing character. I do question if he hadn't been a man, would he have got that much publicity? He probably wouldn't. There are lots of women doing really extraordinary things in trying to make the situation for women and girls a lot better, but um, he's the one who's had a Bollywood film named after him. Just one more thing then, Lynn. You mentioned that the villagers thought that Padman might be a, a vampire and, and I want to finish off talking about this this idea that I think, is it, um, I can't remember his name, like the PayPal guy is supposedly into it. This thing where Teal. rich people will take, rich old people are taking the blood of young people because it somehow has some sort of a rejuvenatory properties to it. So it's such a twilight image, isn't it? It's such a great image. You can just see these um, Silicon Valley billionaires, I will name no names, allegedly, um, you know, biting into the necks of young, handsome men. Um, again, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint everybody, but it's actually plasma, not blood. So there's, there's no lovely, gory red blood involved. It's just going to be the yellow stuff again. But um, I, I know it happens because I interviewed the CEO of a company which uh, does these plasma transfusions. Um, do they work? Who knows? I mean, it's all... I mean, is it even... Can we even not be more specific than that? Surely this doesn't work. It's insane. Well, I, I began to think it was insane when I was interviewing this guy and he told me it could cure dementia. One, one donation of plasma. I mean, that's obviously nonsense. But there are there is serious research uh, being done into these proteins in plasma that I mentioned before and whether they can have a role in treating dementia and various other conditions. So there is definitely some scientific basis to this. Whether you are going to find, you know, an extra 10 years because you have a litre of plasma from a 23-year-old college student, probably not. But if you want to spend your money on that, go ahead. So I've been talking to Rose George. We've been talking about her book Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Mysterious, Miraculous World of Blood, which is out now in the UK from Portobello Books. Rose, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. It's my pleasure.
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.